I'm Gregory Berg. Today, May 21st, 2022, marks the 95th anniversary to the day of the successful conclusion of Charles Lindbergh's dramatic transatlantic airplane flight and his landing in Paris. In honor of that anniversary, I want to replay for you this conversation from five years ago with Dan Hampton talking about his book, The Flight, which is regarded as one of the definitive accounts of Charles Lindbergh's dramatic history-making flight. Enjoy. And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD-HD. I'm Gregory Berg. Yesterday, the 21st of May, marked the 90th anniversary of a very significant milestone in human history. It was on May 21st, 1927, that a pilot by the name of Charles A. Lindbergh landed a small monoplane called the Spirit of St. Louis in Paris, having completed an extraordinary 3,600-mile solo journey across the North Atlantic. Only 500 people were there when he took off. A crowd of more than 100,000 were on hand for his dramatic touchdown in Paris. And with that flight, Charles Lindbergh achieved what had seemed to be utterly impossible and became one of the greatest heroes of his or any age. Dan Hampton, the author of several different best-selling books, has just written a book called The Flight, Charles Lindbergh's daring and immortal 1927 transatlantic crossing. He sets Charles Lindbergh's flight in proper historic context, talking about the technology of the day and its limitations, talking about the competition uh, for the $25,000 Orteig Prize, which is what prompted Lindbergh to undertake this perilous journey. What Dan Hampton does not do in the book is go on to explore any of the controversies which dogged Charles Lindbergh later in his life, uh, and also does not really explore the tragedy that occurred in the early 1930s when uh, Charles Lindbergh's uh, young baby was abducted and ultimately murdered. This book is about the flight itself. In fact, it is a meticulous account, nearly minute by minute, of what that flight was like and how Charles Lindbergh was able to accomplish such a thing. The book is published by William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins, and includes fascinating uh, photographs and diagrams that uh, help us understand just what ensued uh, on that extraordinary journey across the Atlantic. The book again is called The Flight, Charles Lindbergh's Daring and Immortal 1927 Transatlantic Crossing. So, Mr. Hampton, explain who had come close to doing what Charles Lindbergh ultimately accomplished in 1927. There had been pilots who had accomplished nearly the same thing, but not quite the same thing. Uh, say a word about that. Yeah, there were, there were, the Atlantic had been crossed successfully. Uh, the first one that I know about was uh, back in 1919. Actually, the U.S. Navy uh, did it the way the military usually does things. They, uh, they over-engineered a bit. They had three flying boats, and they had warships every 50 miles <laughs> across the Atlantic from Newfoundland to the Azores with, sp- with searchlights so the planes could fly at night. And they, like I said, they were flying boats. So if they came down on the water, it was okay. 
And out of the three that started, one of them made it all the way uh, to England. Uh, not practical for commercial purposes, but the military proved that, it, in, in fact, it could be done. And then uh, a couple of British pilots, Alcott and Brown, uh, took off from uh, Newfoundland and landed, so to speak, in Ireland. So they flew across maybe 2,000 miles of ocean, but they did not fly nonstop from New York to Paris, which was the point of the Ortigue Prize that Lindbergh was, was trying for. It had to be from Paris to New York or, or New York to Paris nonstop. And, of course, that would be for a, a grand prize of $25,000 if someone was able to do that. Do we know exactly how many attempts were made to win that Ortigue Prize? Well, the the most prominent one was was actually there were there were several, um, but the most the most prominent one happened just a few weeks before Lindbergh took off. Two Frenchmen, uh, Charles Nungesser and uh, and Coley, took off from Paris, coming the other way, and they were both well known aviators. They were you know World War One veterans. They were highly experienced, very glamorous, you know, typical French, you know, very very flamboyant excellent pilots and navigators and they disappeared without a trace uh somewhere between ireland and and probably nova scotia nobody ever knows knew knew what happened to him so Lindbergh had that hanging over his head mm-hmm. explain the state of the technology that charles Lindbergh was using of course flight itself had not existed all that long uh but I think it's important for us to understand just how primitive this technology was. There, of course, had been some breakthroughs during the First World War in particular, but we're still talking about a very primitive aircraft compared to today. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, his his plane was um, was basically a steel frame, carbon steel frame uh, with wood, uh, with a wood inner structure. Uh, you know, glued wood, just like they'd used in, in the First World War, and then it was covered with cotton, uh, Pima cotton that had been lacquered, varnished, so to speak, with uh, with acetate dope. Um, so it was really a flimsy little airplane. It had a magnificent engine in it, though. The Wright Whirlwind engine was probably the best one of its time, which if you only have one and you're going to fly across the Atlantic, you know, that's that's what you want. Uh, the biggest limitation for him were, were his navigational instruments. You know, we still hadn't progressed beyond the compass stage and wouldn't for some time. And so he had a couple of different compasses, both of which were subject to magnetic storms, disruption, mechanical problems, all sorts of things. So, you know, he, he knew that as long as he flew east, he'd hit, he'd hit Europe at some point, but he wasn't exactly sure where. <laughs> mm. uh, and I would say that, combined with all of his twisting and turning through the night to avoid weather, you know, he really did not have a good idea of where he was when the sun came up on, on May 21st. Wow. One thing that was uh, quite a revelation to me as I read your fascinating book was the fact that uh, the the primitive nature of his aircraft, and it wasn't exceptionally primitive for its day, I suppose in some ways it was a fairly typical aircraft, but very primitive compared to what someone would fly today, but that there was a, in a sense, hidden advantage to that. Uh, That is, that it was helped him stay awake. You write at one point, now more than ever, Slim, his nickname, uh, was is glad the plane isn't too easy to fly, that it is constantly requiring hands and feet on the controls. Uh, 
so in other words, he, he more easily could have fallen asleep during this long, long flight if the plane had been, in a sense, more modern and easier to fly. Yeah, absolutely. And he fell asleep anyway, you know, a couple of times. It's unavoidable. I mean, the longest I ever flew without a break was about 15 hours, and that was miserable enough in a single-seat, you know, fighter where you can't get up and move around and and go get a drink or (laughs) go to the bathroom or anything. And, you know, he flew twice that long uh, in a plane, you know, a cockpit that was roughly the same size. And he purposely didn't want it easy to fly, as you mentioned, because he figured, rightly so, that it would help keep him awake. And it, and it did. If he took his hands and feet off the controls within a few seconds, you know, it would begin to wander. Uh, you know, he re- there was no autopilot the way we think of it anyway. Um, so he had to stay awake to physically fly, which is another reason why he went alone. Mm-hmm. You know, if you had another pilot with you, you would tend to rely on him. Plus, you know, it, he figured he'd sacrificed 180 pounds worth of fuel, which he which he thought he needed. So he wanted to do it alone for all those reasons. Right. Explain the the level of attention which this attempt uh, received from press both here and abroad. Oh, it was astonishing, you know, and he didn't see that coming. I don't think any. I don't think Raymond Ortiz saw it coming either. Uh, but it's roughly similar, I think, to the hysteria that accompanied, you know, the the first uh, flights into outer space, maybe even the first space shuttle. Uh, you know, it was this was a this was an unknown frontier, the largest at the time. You know, nobody had ever flown across the Atlantic before, and aviation captured people's imaginations. It still does now, even though it's relatively commonplace. You know, uh, and for him to do this, I mean, the the world just went they went crazy. You know, because this this as they saw it was the last frontier and it had been crossed. Uh, ahead of him successfully completing this, what was the tenor of press coverage? I mean, was it uh, a very optimistic kind of coverage, or was there a sense of dread just beneath the surface that Lindbergh was likely to fail as others had failed? Yeah, there, there was a lot of that, and, you know, and for good reason. You know, the, the two Frenchmen had disappeared. René Falk, who'd been a, another French aviator, had crashed right where Lindbergh took off from. <clears throat> you know, he crashed a plane on takeoff. Uh, two American naval aviators had died uh, the month before uh, taking off uh, on a test flight before, prior to crossing the ocean. So there was a lot of that. And then they, they, he was the only guy to try it alone. And so people, all the naysayers came out. You know, there's always people that will tell you, you can't do it. And they figured, well, he's young, he's inexperienced, he's trying this alone. You know, he's, he's definitely going to die. Hmm. Uh, so there was, there was a lot of that. Well, fortunately, of course, uh, Lindbergh does not die. He is successful, and he is the accomplishment is greeted with nothing short of delirium. I so appreciate that you wrote this book in such a way that even though anybody reading it, of course, knows that he succeeds, it still uh, reads like a thriller or a suspense novel. Uh, I wonder uh, if you could say a word as we close about the name of Harry Wheeler. The story of Harry Wheeler on the ground in France really just gives us a, a little uh, idea of the delirium that greeted uh, Lindbergh when he landed. Yeah, you know, the, and you have to read the the readers will have to read it to get the full story. But basically, the the French had a plan to help Lindbergh, you know, basically protect him, and they had a double lined up that they were going to give his hat and coat to, so that they they could they could get him away from the crowd. 
that didn't work out right, and poor old Harry Wheeler was just standing there, and he ended up uh, catching Lindbergh's helmet. And and the fact that he was an American, he was blonde, you know, he, you know, at midnight, you know, at, at ten thirty at night, you know, in Paris, on a dark field, I guess they thought he was Lindbergh, especially since he's carrying the helmet. And so they, you know, they mangled him. I mean, not on purpose. They were very enthusiastic, but they, you know, they basically <laughs> kidnapped him and carried him around on their shoulders. And and he, he even had a hard time convincing the U.S. ambassador that he wasn't Charles Lindbergh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can read more about that extraordinary uh, scene and, and much more uh, in your fascinating book, again, called The Flight, Charles Lindbergh's Daring and Immortal 1927 Transatlantic Crossing, published by William Morrill, complete with fascinating photographs. Dan Hampton, great to reconnect with you, and congratulations on this superb book. My pleasure. I'll come back anytime. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. And now I want to read a portion of Dan Hampton's book to you, a portion of Chapter 1, which is called The First Hours. Roosevelt Field, Long Island, May twentieth, 1927, 7.50 a.m. Glue and gasoline. The snug cockpit reeked, but the pilot ignored both smells. Slowly pushing the throttle forward, he brought the roaring engine to its takeoff revolutions. The frame shook as the aircraft strained against the wheel chocks, desperate to pull man and machine through the wet, clutching clay. Leaning far left against the fabric-covered fuselage, Charles Lindbergh peered through the open window and down Roosevelt Field's narrow runway. Not that there was much he could see on this drizzly Long Island morning. Shredded curtains of rain hung from low, heavy clouds, and he could barely see the tree line at the field's eastern edge. Despite being packed with cinders, the runway was soggy, and the damp sea-level air wasn't giving as much power to the right whirlwind JFC motor as it should. The tachometer, which measures engine revolutions per minute, showed 30 revolutions low. That worried him, as did the slight tailwind. Lindbergh had planned a sunrise takeoff facing into the easterly nighttime wind, but he was late. Now the breeze was from the west, and he either had to have the aircraft move to the other end of the runway or live with the problem. He could die from it, too. 3,610 miles to Paris. Following 12 days after the Frenchman Nugesser and Colley's doomed attempt at the Ortegue Prize in L'Oiseau Blanc, Lindbergh's flight was to be the first to try it nonstop and alone and the first and only American attempt. Crowds had begun gathering at Roosevelt Field at midnight. Now a reported 500 stood expectantly in the rain, in the hope that they might see one of the great dramas of the air, wrote the New York Times' correspondent Russell Owen, who had made his name covering polar exploration. Like the conquest of the poles that a generation earlier had consumed the attention of the masses and made global celebrities of explorers like Peary, Shackleton, Mawson, Scott, and Amundsen, flying nonstop across the Atlantic had emerged as the signal quest of the time, emblematic of civilization's expanding limits. Lindbergh had served in the Army Air Service and was an experienced contract airmail pilot. In fact, it had been while flying the mail 11 months earlier that aviation's vast commercial potential became clear to the young pilot. In 1919, a kindred spirit 
French-born American hotelier of Raymond Ortig proposed his eponymous prize for the first nonstop Paris to New York flight, hoping that in spurring pilots to win the prize money, aviation would be taken seriously and its technology advanced. Eight years later, Charles Lindbergh had drawn the attention of the world to this latest attempt to prove the world-shrinking possibilities of aviation. His maps were the best available, and he had planned the flight for a year, reviewing the route until he felt every detail was familiar. But he also understood the flight required an acceptance of the unknown. Something would happen. While others had crossed the Atlantic piecemeal or in airships, the pilot was aware that very few believed he, so young and unproven, possessed much of a chance. His backers in St. Louis had confidence, of course, as did his mother, Evangeline, in Detroit. Most importantly, he, Charles Augustus Lindbergh, believed it. Not that anyone outside of his rather insular world had ever heard of him before he'd shown up here on Long Island. It didn't matter. Inevitably known as Slim, the tall, lanky former male pilot was committed now. To reduce stress on the undercarriage, his five fuel tanks had only been partially filled at neighboring Curtis Field, and then the aircraft had been towed nearly a mile across open country to Roosevelt Field. Fueling was finished at Roosevelt with bright red five-gallon cans passed up to Ken Lane, Wright's aircraft's chief engineer. With one foot on the nose and another on the wing, Lane had carefully filtered the gas through a 200-mesh wire screen. Losing the engine somewhere over the North Atlantic due to a clogged fuel line was a nasty thought. Almost as bad as having it quit during a, heavy, a heavyweight takeoff with an audience in the rain. But that was the nature of flying. Dangerous and unforgiving. Lindbergh's boots slipped a bit on the plain metal rudder pedals as he hadn't thought to wipe them before squeezing into the narrow cockpit. With smooth foot movements, he walked the rudder, keeping the plane aligned along the runway's northern edge. But without a view forward, it wasn't easy. Slim had had the main fuselage tanks moved forward of the cockpit, which was safer in the event of an accident. Lindbergh had seen too many pilots crushed or burned in crashes because they'd been sandwiched between fuel tanks and an engine. But this meant he had to use a 3-by-5-inch periscope to see straight ahead. There was no front window. His eyes darted inside again to the tachometer. If anything was subtly wrong with the engine, it would show here first. But the needle was steady at 1,825 revolutions. The plane skidded a bit, and as his heart skipped a beat, Slim's blue eyes flashed back to the runway's edge. I must hold the plane straight and not take my eyes from its edge for an instant. He wasn't moving fast enough to fly yet. Men were still running alongside the plane, their hands on the struts, pushing it through the muddy mess. His mechanic had actually greased the tires so they wouldn't stick as much, but he couldn't tell if it helped. The engine sounded muted, almost weak, compared to previous test flights and his trip here from the West Coast. Slim could feel the stick wobble in his hands, which wouldn't happen if enough air was passing over the air, uh, control surfaces. Faster, he had to get the plane moving faster. It felt more like an overloaded truck than an airplane. Built by Ryan Airlines in San Diego and named the Spirit of St. Louis, 
The plane was heavier than ever before. 450 gallons of California gasoline, complements of standard oil, produced a gross weight of 5,250 pounds. This was an astounding number, no, more than two and a half tons, and though Lindbergh knew the J-5 right whirlwind was theoretically capable of overcoming it, he'd never done it before. Lieutenant Commander Noel Davis and Lieutenant Stanton Wooster had tried a heavyweight takeoff three weeks earlier in Virginia. On April 26th, their Keystone Pathfinder American Legion, a full ton overweight, stalled on takeoff, and both died after smashing into a mud bank. Transocean flyers dogged by bad luck. All serious contenders here in Dash to Paris have met with reverses, some fatal, the New York Times had reported. Many tragedies recently, 13 deaths reported in this month alone. His face pale, Lindbergh stared from the little window, searching for a tiny white handkerchief he'd tied to a stick set in the ground. It was there as a warning. Half the runway was gone and only 3,000 feet remained. He'd extrapolated a 2,250-foot takeoff distance from his test data, but that had been on a dry runway with a seven-knot headwind. What had he been thinking? Did he, Charles Lindbergh, possess some magical quality that the others before him lacked? They were certainly older than his 25 years and much more experienced. Why did he think he could succeed where they failed? Nearly a mile long, Roosevelt Field was the only choice for such an attempt. But was it even long enough? Yards from where he'd started, just off the runway's western edge, was an ugly, black, scorched area at the area at the bottom of a ravine. A bent propeller blade was stuck upright in the middle of the burn, poignantly marking the crash of the last pilot who tried to reach Paris from New York. René Funk, the great French flying ace, had rumbled down this very runway eight months ago in September, crashing an expensive aircraft and causing the horrible deaths of two crewmen. Lurching forward, the spirit feels heavy and ungainly to the pilot. Lindbergh bounces in the wicker seat like riding in a buckboard wagon, and details jump out, mist hovering off the ground, mud slapping against the aircraft, blue violets clustered in the grass. But he felt a difference. At 300 feet down the runway, the plane is faster, and the last men have let go of the struts. Should he have waited? A takeoff seemed hopeless, Lindbergh would later write, and the wrong decision would mean a crash. Should he have waited another day or swallowed his pride and had the heavy aircraft towed around to the other end of Roosevelt Field? A thousand feet down the runway now and the stick is tighter. Slim feels air pressure pushing on the rudder through his boots. Spinning hard into the thick air, the propeller is trying to bite, to hold and pull the spirit into the sky. Is it enough? Will the wings take the heavy load before the 34-inch wire-spoked wheels snap? The handkerchief, a brief white speck flutters in the gray air, then vanishes into the mist. Halfway now, 3,000 feet down and still not fast enough. He should have been airborne more than 500 feet back. Too much fuel? The extra 25 gallons added 153 pounds. Or is it the tailwind or the mushy runway? Too many variables. He knows that. He knows better. Lindbergh pulls the stick back an inch 
and the wheels rise off the ground. But the spirit immediately sinks back to the mud, hitting a puddle and splashing cold, dirty water along the cotton fabric fuselage. The wings wobble. His right hand and both feet play the stick and rudder to keep the plane straight. Lindbergh can feel the spirit tremble, an animal crouch to spring. And then the right wing suddenly dips. Pull up! The wings level. Now ease back to the runway, softly. A little rudder, and the plane settles. More splashes, and he feels the wheels slip in the mud. The roar fills the cockpit now as the engine churns out power, and his gloved fingers hold the throttle forward. It's like being inside a drum. The wheels lift off again, and he senses the ground falling away a few feet. I could probably stay in the air, but he doesn't. Letting the spirit sink, Lindbergh feels the wheels mush again, but this time it's different, and the earth can't hold him down. The plane wants to fly. Sliding over the ground, controls taut, Slim feels all 223 horses throbbing through the stick. Staring through the silver spinning blades, Slim knows he's much too close to cut the power and far too fast now to stop. Does he have the speed to clear the wall of trees and telephone wires a thousand feet up? Up, up! The propeller bites, wings lift, and the spirit claws itself off the ground at 7.52 on that Friday morning. As the plane staggers slowly into the air, 25 feet high now, the trees are rushing up. So are the wires, shining in the rain like a spider web. 40 feet. The whirlwind's powerful growling thickens its, his hearing, and water droplets splatter across Lindbergh's goggles. No choice now but to fly or die. From the corner of his eye, the pilot glimpses a small knot of men at the end of the runway. The president of Ryan Airlines, B.F. Mahoney, and others are gathered around a big Lancia sedan, waiting with fire extinguishers, just in case. Suddenly, trees flash beneath the gleaming wet wheels, manicured grass, pale faces looking up, the golf course. He's over the links, past the east end of the airfield. But through the spinning eight-foot, nine-inch propeller, he sees another hill ahead. The stick trembles, and he knows the plane is telling him not to turn. There's not enough altitude to trade for airspeed, and not enough airspeed to maneuver. They're on the ragged edge of a stall, and his breathing quickens again. If he tries to avoid the hill, the spirit will likely stall, and they'll spin in, just like Wooster and Davis. Tapping the rudder, Slim gently nudges the stick to the right. The aircraft answers ever so slightly, almost reluctantly, and they barely clear the hill. I'm above the trees. Lindbergh leaves New York at 7.52 a.m. With cool determination, he braves death to get off in the misty dawn, Russell Owen breathlessly reported to the Times' readers. Hundreds gasp as unconquerable youth Lindbergh, by sheer wizardry, lifts machine-carrying 5,200-pound load with failure a few yards off. This was a portion of Chapter 1 of Dan Hampton's wonderful new book called The Flight, Charles Lindbergh's daring and immortal 1927 transatlantic crossing. The book is published by... William Morrow, an imprint of HarperCollins. I'm Gregory Berg.